everyone and welcome. My name is Rachel Grant and I am a third year Bachelor of Architecture and Design student and a 2020 New Colombo Plan Scholar for Japan. I'm excited to be your host for the second session of Exploring Asia, focusing on alumni experiences for you to gain insights from NCP scholars themselves and to know what to expect when traveling to the Asia Pacific region. I would also like to introduce Bachelor of Music student and 2020 New Colombo Plan Scholar, Julia Hill who will be moderating the chat tonight. First of all, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today. This evening, I am on the lands of the Yugen Bay people and I pay my respects to the elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people present here today. Before I introduce our incredible speakers, briefly, I need to go over some housekeeping for this session. For recording purposes, if you could please keep your audio and video turned off, that would be greatly appreciated. If you have any questions already in mind, feel free to type them into the chat box and Julia will respond when appropriate. If the question is best suited to the Q&A at the end of this session, we will save them for then. Without further ado, I would like to introduce our speakers, Millie Vernick, James Fairley and Elise Stevenson. Millie Vernick is a fourth year Bachelor of Laws, Bachelor of Government and International Relations student who was awarded the 2019 New Colombo Plan Scholarship for Hong Kong. Millie attained an internship with Price Waterhouse Coopers in Shanghai, a semester of political science at the University of Hong Kong, a semester of law at National Taiwan University, and undertook part time Mandarin language training. James Fairley is a Griffith graduate of a Bachelor of Laws. Bachelor of Government and International Relations and was awarded the 2019 New Colombo Plan Scholarship for Vietnam. James has recently commenced a Master of Governance and Public Policy at the University of Queensland. Prior to James's NCP scholarship, he commenced exchanges at Sciences Po France and Nanyang Technology University Singapore. This culminated with an internship at KPMG Vietnam and engagements with the Asian Foundation and Mitsubishi Group. Elise Stevenson is a Griffith graduate and was awarded at inaugural New Colombo Plan Scholarship in 2014. Elise is recognised as a leading change maker in Australia in Australian international relations by the United Nations Australia Association, Boston's Consulting Group, the Foundation for Young Australians and Young Australians in International Affairs. Elise has undertaken research and study exchanges across the region, including at Zhejiang University in China, the International Islamic University of Malaysia and the University of Hong Kong, as well as worked across Japan, Singapore, Vietnam, Cambodia and Brunei, to name a few. I would now like to pass on to Millie to tell us about her experiences during, during her New Colombo Plan Scholarship program and beyond. Thanks, Rachel. Uh, thank you, everyone, for being here today. I hope that we are able to give you a lot of insight into what it's like to go overseas and especially to go into Asia and engage with a lot of these amazing um, scholarship opportunities. Uh, so as Rachel mentioned, I am a law international relations student and I'm in my fourth year. Uh, I was awarded the New Colombo Plan Scholarship in 2019 for Hong Kong. Uh, as you'll see soon when the slides appear, oh, here they are, my New Colombo Plan Scholarship started in China. Here I undertook two and a half month internship with PwC Legal and I also was lucky enough to get to travel around to a few different cities. So here there's me at the Great Wall of China in Beijing. And there's also some photos from my time in uh, Xi'an and Shanghai. Um, after my 
internship with PwC in China. On the next slide, you'll see that I began my study component of my new Kwanla Plan scholarship in Hong Kong. And here I did one semester of political science at the University of Hong Kong. And I also completed uh, part-time Mandarin language training. And on the next slide, uh, I speak about Taiwan. Here in Taiwan, I was relocated due to the political protests and the escalating situation of Hong Kong. I originally planned to do two semesters and work in Hong Kong. However, this didn't go to plan. So I chose to relocate to Taiwan to kind of keep the dream alive and keep on my new climate plan scholarship and try and do as much as I can in Asia while I'm there. While I was in Taiwan, I enrolled in the National Taiwan University for a semester of law. And I was lucky enough to stay in Taiwan for about two months before unfortunately COVID brought me home to Australia. But it was still a really great experience overall and I'm really glad that I chose to continue on my program by relocating. On the next slide, um, you'll see that I was very fortunate to attend the 2020 Peace Summit of Emerging Leaders while also on my NCP program. I attended this conference as a delegate of the Griffith Honors College and I was very, very fortunate to be able to attend this three-day conference. Uh, it was very, very insightful program and I would great to, it was great to hear from so many wonderful speakers about what we can do to better promote peace in our communities and around the world and how we can help achieve the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, so this is just one of the many events that I was really privileged to be a part of while living in Asia and particularly being on my NCP experience. Uh, on the next slide, I've also just included a few photos of me and my travels. Uh, so while I was living overseas for about a year, I was also very, very dedicated to wanting to travel wherever I could. So while I had some downtime, I traveled to Malaysia, Vietnam, Laos and Myanmar. So that's, a, that's me. Um, I look forward to answering all your questions in the Q&A session to follow. Um, please feel free to drop anything in the chat at all and we'd be happy to answer them. I'll now pass over to James Fairley. Thank you for that, um, Millie. I think I think you really undersell your unexpected changes during your um, during your program. Millie was really unlucky with everything that happened in Hong Kong, and then coming moving all all her stuff to to Taiwan, only to be told two months later that uh, that she had to come home due to COVID. So I think it's a pretty remarkable experience here, Millie. Certainly don't uh, undersell it. That would be what I'd say. For me, my my background is a little bit different. Um, I didn't go to uh, China or Hong Kong. So I suppose as a start, um, I first went overseas in my first year um, of university. I went to the Harvard World Model UN um, in Rome with another Griffith student who you can see in the middle pictured right. Uh, that's Alex Dixon. Griffith uh, supported us to go over to the Harvard World Model UN to work with students from around the world to develop policy solutions to different um, issues. And that conference uh, was about cross-border terrorism um, in Africa, but they deal with a whole range of um, issues each year. And, and they are on each year. I think this year was in Tokyo, but obviously that's been postponed. So hopefully we're back to normal next year. So following that experience uh, on the next slide, I thrilled by studying or working um, overseas. I went and did two exchanges abroad in very different contexts. Uh, so I went to Sciences Po, studied uh, European affairs, so uh, politics, economics, those kind of things, working uh, or studying under some pretty amazing uh, lecturers. I got to study under the former president of, of Merrill Lynch um, and also some members of the European Union Parliament which is really great. Uh, and then I went to Nanyang Tech uh, in Singapore, where I studied uh, politics of the developing world and also some Singaporean business law subjects, which, which really gained a, a really uh, diverse experience um, in advanced markets, both in Europe uh, and Asia. 
So following that experience, I then embarked on my NCP scholarship. So based in Vietnam, uh, I was studying and working um, in country. Uh, so those are some pictures from my stay. I studied at RMIT um, in Vietnam, uh, a number of business courses, finance courses, um, and also some modern Asia courses around the changing cultural dynamic of Asia, which was quite, quite insightful. And I would encourage um, Australian students to go and do that. Uh, and then I, I did work at KPMG at Vietnam, and we did a lot of market entry stuff for foreign companies coming into Vietnam, and also talking about policy recommendations around the future of the pharmaceutical industry in Vietnam, which sounds quite boring, but will actually leave quite a big footprint um, in terms of, of developing or providing uh, affordable pharma pharmaceuticals to people, which is really cool to do at like, 23 years old. So I really enjoyed that. Um, I also did some other engagements on NCP um, on the next slide. So I uh, went back to Europe to the Global Legal Forum, um, and we talked about some emerging issues around uh, providing human rights in developing economies. As you can see on the top left there, I got to go to the Peace Palace uh, in The Hague, which was really awesome because that's where a lot of the international disputes between countries are resolved. And then I went to the uh, ASEAN Foundation Model ASEAN meeting, which actually was held a week before Millie went to the Peace Summit. So we were both in Bangkok, but I left. And then two days later, Millie came. But that was really cool uh, because I got to again, like Model UN, uh, create some policy solutions, but for a uniquely sort of for uniquely ASEAN problem. So we did a lot of stuff around uh, the provision of uh, migrant healthcare. So for example, um, in Vietnam, there are big issues with Cambodian workers coming across and getting injured, and they're not covered by Vietnamese healthcare. So we did a lot of stuff around uh, developing that sort of policy. And that was then passed on um, to, to representatives of the ASEAN Foundation. And hopefully, uh, some of that policy will break through. Uh, and then finally, I, I did an internship uh, with uh, Mitsubishi um, across Japan in their different areas. Fun fact about Mitsubishi, the different Mitsubishi companies are actually completely separate. So there's no one company. Uh, so what that means is the uh, Mitsubishi Motors, for example, is a completely different company to Mitsubishi Electric. And they even bid on um, different projects uh, or the same projects they can bid as separate companies. So they do have minority shareholdings in each other, but for all intents and purposes, they're separate companies. So that was really cool and a fun fact that you might not know. Uh, on that note, I will hand across to Elise. Big thanks to Elise for coming tonight. I'm really excited to hear what she has to say. She has a whirlwind of experience across Asia. Oh, thanks so much, James. Yeah, wow. So lots to experience. Um, for me, so I, I did a Bachelor of Asian and International Studies at Griffith University and um, Government and International Relations. And I've just finished my PhD, actually, which is very exciting. But I started off, uh, my first voyage into Asia was um, in 2009 now. And you can see me on the screen there looking very young, looking very, um, probably a bit bewildered by things. I think, um, you know, first trip into the region was was an experience on a number of levels. I think I'd just finished grade 12. I'd just finished schoolies and I headed over to Japan on an American field scholarship. And we were basically there to do a cultural and language exchange. And this was at a point in time, you know, I feel really old now 
talking about it, but you know, there was no smartphones at this point, um, or I certainly didn't have one. And so in terms of keeping in touch with friends, family, um, you know, colleagues back home, that was basically impossible. Um, I didn't talk to my parents for a month, which as a 17 year old was pretty, pretty new to me. And I think I definitely had quite a few teary nights. Um, so it was, you know, when you start off and kind of your first trips into the region, I think it, it, it definitely grows and changes. Um, the more you go, the more you experience and I guess, yeah, the more time passes too. So for me, um, going to the next slide, over the last 10 years now, I've been back and forth to the region, generally between one and five or six times a year to work with different countries and on different projects. I've basically done every study exchange I could, um, short term and long term, as well as community internships, research, and also work. For me, I studied my dual degrees in 2011 and I was very lucky. My first exchange with Griffith was in at the end of that year and I headed to Hangzhou in China um, to study at Zhejiang University. And you can see me up there on the top left. And, um, you know, I'm, maybe I've got a little bit more game about me these days, but I, I coming from Japan first in my first trip in 2009 to then China, I thought, oh, you know, I understand a little bit about Japan. I'm going to understand what China's like and I, I don't think it'll be an issue. But when I actually arrived in China, I couldn't believe it. I, I had such a culture shock, I think, firstly, because of the pollution um, and then also, you know, elements of kind of an approach to the environment and, and some sort of social attitudes that I really found quite challenging to begin with. And so for me, it was kind of this reminder that even when you might have a an understanding of a particular country or a particular culture. It's never the full experience. And every time you go to a new country or culture, you've kind of got to approach it with that fresh mindset um, once again. During that time, we did some really cool things. We hiked up um, Yellow Mountain, you know, and there I was as a maybe 18 or 19 year old at the time. And I think we had to climb something like 2000 steps. And I was just watching these little old Chinese men go up the mountain and they had an entire pig that they were carrying up the mountain with them and I thought oh god I can't manage just on my own but here's these people carrying you know gi giant pigs and um, gas bottles and all these things and yeah it was just such an amazing experience to be kind of thrust into China at that time. Subsequently I've done lots of different trips which have just been wonderful. Um, I've headed back to Japan to do a model United Nations. I headed to uh, Cambodia, where I did um, some volunteering with Griffith University. I even did a community internship in Laos. And, you know, this is one of those experiences of kind of going from, you know, the most developed areas in the region and areas that might be much more technologically advanced than Australia to those that are really starting off on some of their journeys there. And, you know, I remember kind of um, all kinds of things happening on, on that trip, you know, having to canoe up a river, um, you know, trying not to fall into the leech infested water, um, you know, trying to make it out to the communities that we were supposed to be working with and all the while just trying to maintain an, a kind of adaptable and flexible mindset. Headed back to China in 2013 to be part of Griffith Asia Institute's Emerging Leaders Dialogue. I think it might have been the first year that that was being run. And that same year also was very privileged to go and um, uh, represent Australia at the Asia Pacific Cities Summit um, and pre present the Young Professionals Accord, basically having a look at, well, what does our region of young people and Australians want for the future? And a really unique opportunity, I suppose, to connect with other like-minded individuals. 
if you're not aware of it, there was this amazing study called the Muslim World Study Tour that was part of Griffith. And I had a really, really cool opportunity to meet the former Prime Minister of Malaysia um, at the time, Tun Dr. Mahathir Mohamed. And all of these experiences led me to kind of what many would consider the capstone of um, studying in Asia, which is the New Colombo Plan Scholarship. I was part of the inaugural round in 2014, headed over to Hong Kong. Um, you know, the umbrella movement had just taken off there. There was a lot of street protests and rioting, uh, you know, quite a few threats to the university and staff members. Um, and it was just such a great experience really to be thrust into the, the middle of things and also work how to do um, my honours research at the time whilst also, you know, being really self-driven in a country where I actually didn't have to take any classes. And so my time was spent, you know, really doing that self-directed learning and outreach and engagement. At the time I was studying women's leadership. So uh, it was cool. I got to call up all of these amazing women leaders across Hong Kong, interview them. And so that for me, I think was a really good experience to think, well, you don't only have to do um, study in Asia, you can also do research, which was very fun. Um, on to the next slide. This kind of whole history of doing work and engagement with the Asia Pacific region kind of perfectly positioned me so that in 2018, I was approached to co-curate a international human rights festival in Hong Kong. Now, some people that I'd kind of been vaguely in touch with over the years from my time in Hong Kong had reached out to me and said, you know, I know that you have a background in the region. I know that you are very engaged in human rights. You know, would you come and help us organise? What we did was we essentially, um, it was the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And so our goal was to bring 70 of the world's top leaders in human rights. And I mean, you know, different leaders too. We had amazing transgender women from Pacific Islands. We had intersex um, people from uh, Iran. We had, um, you know, all kinds of different background people, people from Somalia, from London, from Singapore. And we brought them all together to consider things like, well, how does climate change affect a um, transgender woman in the Pacific Islands? Or how does conflict affect an indigenous woman on the edge of the Thai-Myanmar border? essentially a way of looking at the world through a different lens. One of my highlights of doing this was definitely, you see the beautiful prints here on the right of the screen. Um, this is India's first openly gay prince, Prince Manvendra Singh Gohil. And we got to spend the whole week working with this incredible prince and other world leaders, essentially around how do we create the best human rights for our region and world. Doing all of this work, um, you know, many of you will already be in touch with DFAD and, um, you know, Department of Foreign Affairs and all of these kind of amazing connections you're making. But I was able to basically um, start to work professionally with these organisations too. So on the next side, you'll see um, in 2018, end of 2018, I was approached uh, as Australia runs this program called Australia Now. It's our biggest public diplomacy program. The aim is to go over and showcase and kind of, I don't know, celebrate the diversity of Australia to the world. And I got a call saying, hey, we'd, we'd love some help. We're doing a focus on youth and we're doing a focus on the Asia Pacific region. We think you'd be great for this. And so I put forward a proposal for a young entrepreneurs and leaders speaker series and across 
all of 2019. Um, this year and next year, I'm running this series basically with the Australian government all across Southeast Asia. The aim is to bring together all of these incredible young leaders, give them a platform, give them a voice and give them a space to collaborate on, on some of the biggest issues or topics in our region. So things like climate change, um, gender equality, um, you know, startup social enterprise. Um, we even got to do um, this really cool thing. So I'd travelled to a lot of different countries. I'd um, kind of been in the region for quite a while and I got a call saying, hey, Brunei would be really interested in having some of your works. As a openly gay woman, I was a little bit hesitant at first as Brunei had introduced a um, death penalty against homosexual acts at the start of last year. And I said, hey, you can Google me. It'll come up pretty easily who I am and, and what I do. Is this safe? I got all of the assurances it was. And so I basically headed over to Brunei and I ran these amazing uh, workshops on everything from sustainable fashion to social enterprise to LGBTI inclusion. And it was really a transformational time. And it really reminded me that uh, no matter what preconceived notions you might have about a place, um, there is, uh, you know, there's nothing that beats actually being there in person and connecting with individuals. And sometimes it just takes that experience of stepping out of your own bubble and actually talking to people to, to kind of really get some common ground and establish a space for yourself. So that's been really um, exciting. And I think for me, my, my journey of, you know, studying Asia, of experiencing Asia, of studying in and researching Asia has kind of brought to me to this point now where my work is very firmly in the Asia Pacific region and yeah, I'm really thrilled. Um, please ask any more questions as we go, but there's certainly been a few interesting ones along the way. Wow, thank you so much, Elise. Your experience is incredibly inspiring. And I will also extend that thank you to Millie and James for such an insightful presentation. We are now going to move on to some questions. And while we are talking, feel free to post any questions you have in the chat and we will get to those shortly. This first question, I will start by asking Millie, as I would really like to know more about how you were able to overcome such challenges while abroad. So what are some examples where you had to think quick, be flexible, and how are you able to be so resilient during your travels? Thanks, Rachel. Um, I think this is a very important question to ask because going on any kind of um, exchange or involvement in other countries really requires you to be resilient and adaptable and really open to new experiences. So a bit of a background, as I mentioned slightly in my introduction, my whole aim was to be in Hong Kong for 18 months. And I found that before I left Australia, I said to myself, you know, I'm always going to be adaptable, I'm going to be flexible and open to new opportunities. But I, I never really imagined how much I would have to take my own advice on board when a lot of things started to move really quickly for me. Um, so the first major move for me was when the political protests were escalated in Hong Kong and, um, you know, you had some, some really bad days there and it culminated in universities being set on fire and having to therefore be cancelled. And my semester was just done. I was halfway through my semester in Hong Kong when everything was cancelled for the year. And it was kind of in limbo, like they didn't know if they were gonna continue or um, if we were gonna move to an online mode. So that's when I first had to try and adapt. Not only was I in a new country who was experiencing so much political turmoil, but I also was dealing with my exchange um, semester being cancelled or not knowing what was happening next. Um, because I think DFAT and universities were still trying to figure out what the best thing to do was. Um, I ended up finishing a few courses online that they wanted to run till the end. And I was kind of hopeful that I would be able to go back into Hong Kong 
the following year into my second semester as planned. But unfortunately, things did escalate a little more and I was told I couldn't remain in Hong Kong. So we all had to find somewhere to relocate. And this is the first instance for me where I really found that I really had to be resilient, adapt, and just have that open mind. If I wanted to continue my experiences, I knew that I would have to move on and just rise up to the occasion and just see whatever I can do to make it work and to keep it going. Um, but then this also meant for me a lot of changes to my plans because I had some pretty solid plans um, set in stone for Hong Kong for the following year. Um, but I was really happy that I chose to relocate to Hong Kong, uh, sorry, to relocate to Taiwan uh, because I, I loved my experiences here and it was a great way for me to continue not only my involvement in Asia and in the same geographical region of China, Hong Kong and then Taiwan, but also continuing my international education and then at a different university and then meeting a whole different group of people from that same um, region. And this was, this was a really great experience for me. Um, I did have to then come home because of COVID and this is just another spanner in the works for me. And I really didn't know what was happening. Like, you know, you get an email saying you have 24, 48 hours to be back in Australia and nothing, none of my advice that I was given or that I had said to myself about how being adaptable I needed to be really applied to the situation because I couldn't really comprehend what was happening. I just, I had a day or two to leave the country back in Australia and that resulted in internship study and language that was already planned till December being cancelled. But yeah, I really just had to be resilient, just say, okay, I'm going home, but I'm pausing my program. So a lot of people ended their program, but I just thought, no, I'm going to pause it. I'm going to go back whenever I can um, because I'm still very, very determined to finish what I started. So I'm really hoping I can return to the region um, next year. But how I've adapted since then has been examples such as I had an internship scheduled in India for October this year. And I was really, really looking forward to that. It was in an area of law that I'm really interested in. And that company's been great, though. They've said, OK, you can do that internship virtually from Australia and then you can come back and see us next year when you're allowed to travel again. So it was me just taking hold again of any opportunity I can to stay engaged. So that's a way that I've tried to continue to keep the dream alive, I guess, by just doing whatever I can to keep the momentum going and still saying yes to every opportunity. You know, I could say, no, I don't want to do it virtually. I only want to be there in person, but I feel like, yeah, in order to make the best out of any situation, you need to just have a really positive attitude and try and do whatever you can to keep it going because at the end of the day, a positive attitude is going to really impact your time as a whole. I feel like I had a lot of um, unsettling experiences, not only with, you know, this thing I'd worked so hard towards being gone in an instant, um, but also just other things that happen day to day when you're living overseas and you're living in different cultures. Um, you just really need to move on with the bad and just really appreciate all the good that's happening in order to make your time as valuable as possible. I think that that would be my advice for anyone wondering what to do in those difficult situations is just have the best attitude you possibly can, say yes to everything and just be really flexible. Amazing, thank you so much Millie. And James, I'll extend that question to you too. So what are some examples where you had to think quick, be flexible? And how were you able to be so resilient? Yeah, look, uh, as I said earlier, Millie's had a really interesting experience with unexpected stuff. I mean, I haven't had to, apart from COVID, where I had to come home, um, I haven't had that kind of experience. Um, I think, you know, there are day-to-day -day things that happen when you're living overseas. There's cultural things that you don't expect to happen, um, you know, security things that happen. Certainly, um, living in France, you know, 
when there's suspected terror attacks and stuff like that, which did happen um, when I was there, things change very quickly and you have to really try and um, take things, you know, slowly and carefully um, to, you know, not freak out basically, you know, it's, it's much like, for example, scuba diving, like if you're underwater and things change really quickly, you can't go for the surface. You've got to really step back and think about what's going on and kind of assess it. And over time you do build resilience. I mean, and, and I think many people that have these experiences don't really look back on what's happened and recognize that, wow, this is actually a really random experience. You know, this has affected me in this way. But I think, you know, the other thing to remember is when random stuff or unexpected stuff does happen, often it, it gives way to another opportunity. And certainly in the Asia region, um, there are lots of opportunities to get involved and do different stuff. Um, things to keep an eye out for. There's lots of, you know, organisations. Um, and I'm speaking, you know, for example, like Millie said, she came back to Australia and she's got an internship that's going online. There are still those kind of opportunities as well. Um, and you really got to take a hold of those. So, for example, you look at the ASEAN Australia um, Strategic Youth Partnership. They're doing sort of events and things all the time that can help you upskill up and help you really engage in the region. You have um, smaller groups like um, the uh, Australia-Vietnam Youth Leadership Dialogue. Um, you got all those sort of that sort of arena that people really forget or young people forget when they're wanting to engage with Asia. And that's a really good way to overcome, you know, kind of barriers um, to, to things that, that may come up and really continue to engage with the region. Do you have anything to add on that, Elise? Yeah, I think for me, the kind of challenges vary from, um, you know, just amusing things like um, the fact that a uh, one of the roads that we were driving on to get from one internship location to another in Laos um, got washed away by the floods. And so essentially we had to, you know, get into a river and trek across it to get to the other side to get into a new car. And so, you know, that's kind of funny in that you've got to adapt and just move with the times. If there's no road, you know, you've got to, you know, make your own way through the river, right? Um, secondly, I guess would be, you know, little things like, um, I found it very challenging to live in a very small space when I was studying at Hong Kong, I was in a, you know, a room I, I, that I'd say would be about the size of a double bed. And I really struggled with that lack of space as well as, um, the pollution, uh, to kind of cope with the, on a kind of daily sort of level. Um, but then there's other stuff, you know, at, at a case that we were working in Cambodia and we were doing a lot of work around human rights. Um, we were doing a lot of work around youth participation and um, women's participation. We were warned that going into one of the organisations we were running a workshop for, you know, the police were watching us, they were taking note of what we were saying, you know, um, what we were running our workshops on. Um, and for us, it was not so much that we were ever at risk as kind of the international visitors, but rather it was being um, conscious of the fact that as a visitor in a country, you know, depending on what you're, you're doing, your, what you're running workshops on, how you're engaging, um, sometimes it's those host bodies or host organisations that may be watched. Um, so for us, it was kind of, well, what is the impact on the people who actually have to live here and this is their life? going forwards, whereas I get to come and go as I please and, and basically being conscious of the fact that you are a visitor at all times and negotiating some of those real political um, and institutional kind of uh, barriers or structures, I'd say, yeah. 
Amazing. Thank you so much, Elise. We'll move on to the next question. Uh, so what were some cultural differences between your host location and Australia that really stood out to you? So Millie, would you like to answer that one first? Sure thing. Um, I think one that really stood out to me, a um, bit of background, I had travelled quite a lot in Asia before I went on my NCP program. So I had quite a bit of experience with, you know, just really adapting and taking on cultural differences and not really thinking much about it. But for me, when I got to China, initially when I started my program, something that stood out to me was on my first day of work uh, when I had my induction, I was told as a foreigner, you really shouldn't help anyone that you see that might need help. So for example, there's a car crash, if there's a bike accident, you know, you cannot go near it because there's a very real chance that if anything happens, you'd be arrested and charged with whatever happened to that person. And to me, that was something that I never really thought about as being a thing because in Australia, if you see someone who needs help, you kind of just go up to them and do whatever you can, you know? So that was kind of the first um, sign for me that there was going to be a lot that I'd have to adapt to. And it was probably the biggest I guess, um, moment where I thought, wow, things are going to be pretty different here. Um, even though it might seem insignificant and never actually applied to me. Um, I think that's just one of the standout things to me in the cultural, um, norms and differences between Australia and China, for example. And James, did you have anything else to add to that? Um, look, uh, I think there's, there's non, uh, I mean, you know, it's important to recognise as different cultural stuff, but but also just living, um, you know, in Southeast Asia can be very different. Um, certainly, as Elise mentioned, there are things like pollution, even stuff like, um, you know, the diet's different, access to, to different food. You know, in Australia, um, I can, um, you know, go out and get a big steak or something. That's not really an affordable option for, for dinner um, every night in Asia. Um, I think, you know, culturally, there's very different aspects, certainly living in um, Vietnam, for example, in terms of nationalism, there's very overt displays of nationalism. Um, you know, for example, uh, Vietnam might win a, a football game and then everyone will go out all night blaring their horns and, and driving around the city, um, which is great because I hadn't experienced that before um, because, I mean, certainly... Australia doesn't have that same degree of nationalism. Um, so there are different themes, like political themes like that, um, which, you know, is really a really enriching experience to, to go to because as a multicultural country, I think we don't really get to enjoy that real deep level of like rich, um, you know, culture that transcends through society. And, and certainly um, in places like Vietnam, um, in Thailand, for example, it's, it's really exciting to see and experience. Um, I think those are probably some of the big cultural differences. Yeah. Thanks, James. Elise, go ahead. What, do you have anything else to add to that? Yeah, I was just going to say one of the um, best things that I think I was told on my very first tip, tip, trip to Japan um, was basically, you know, to go in with this mindset that it's not right, it's not wrong, it's just different. And so this kind of mantra has kind of stayed with me the whole way. And I think, you know, um, I, for me, pollution and um, space constraints were always the things that um, kind of affected me most overseas. But 
also I remember being quite, you know, shocked, I suppose, by, um, you know, going to some countries where I was talking to young people and, you know, I guess the values were different. So talking about democracy, for instance, and democracy not being a shared value, even from young people, which I thought was quite, um, it was quite challenging for me. But again, remembering it's not right, it's not wrong, it's just different. That's a great point, actually. Um, you know, people overseas have a very different relationship with government um, than we have here. You know, for example, um, in some places, people don't, are, aren't, either government isn't there or they're not interested in, in, in challenging anything that the government has to do. You know, mm -hmm. I remember one of my friends had a problem with some form they'd submitted and the decision maker where they were living, for example, had come out with a really weird decision. Uh, I said, well, why don't you go and ask them about it? And the idea of asking was just such, asking the government uh, about the decision was just such a foreign idea to that person. They were just kind of like, why would I, why would I do that? Um, so that's an important thing to note is you can't really change things. It's just something, something different. That's so interesting to note. Thank you so much for that discussion. Um, we'll move on to another question. So how do you feel that your experiences abroad changed your life? Uh, this could be in ways of your habits, future aspirations, values, or even your goals. So Millie, I might ask you first. Um, well, well, this is a really um, broad question, I think, because when I think of that question, I think, how didn't it change me? Um, I came out of my experience very different to what I could have imagined. And I, yeah, I think it's a really difficult question. Um, one thing in particular, I think that stands out to me um, in my values that I found it didn't change, but it, I just hi it highlighted my values um, In Australia, we're lucky to be able to vote and there's compulsory voting from the age of 18 It's just it happened it's same with every other democracy in the world and then when I went into Hong Kong and the protests were um, very politically about their uh, their ability to vote for their leaders because in Hong Kong it's a very different system they can vote but they don't directly vote for um, you know, their, their top leaders. So this was really something that stood out to me because you had people protesting in the streets every weekend, every day, pretty much, just because they wanted the, they wanted universal suffrage. They wanted the ability to vote for everything in like a kind of a clear democracy way. And it's nothing, it's something I never really thought about beforehand as being something I took for granted because I feel like a lot of people probably even on this call would be like, oh, I have to go vote today. You know, like when voting day is, you know, it might be a slight inconvenience to you because you're working or you have something else on. But to me, like after living in Hong Kong for so long while these protests were so ongoing every single week, it really um, made me realise how lucky I was to have something so simple that they have to fight so hard for. Um, so I feel like that's just one of the many examples I could give to how my experience has changed, I guess, my outlook and my values. Um, it's made me really appreciate a lot of the things that I had not really had a second thought about while living in Australia and before I went overseas, um, and particularly having lived in China prior to living in Hong Kong and then experiencing that whole, um, the, all the turmoil that the two were going through. Uh, that's something that really stood out to me. That's so interesting about um, just how those experiences just shaped your experiences now that you are currently in, in Australia. It's so fascinating. Um, so thank you, Millie, for that. Uh, James, I'll pass that on to you as well. So were there any experiences um, that have changed your values, future aspirations and goals in Australia now? 
Sure. Um, look, I, I think uh, being a law student before I left, uh, I did a number of clerkships uh, in Brisbane. I think that like a typical law student, I wanted to go into corporate law and do that kind of stuff. Uh, certainly NCP changed that. Um, and even non-NCP stuff that I did change that. Um, and I think someone in the audience has asked about, you know, different, different programs and opportunities. Um, and I think for me, those were probably the most informative. So I got to go to, um, as I said before, Mitsubishi in Japan. Um, and there are a number of, I mean, obviously I was on NCP, but there are a number of people that weren't. Uh, and I think that it impacted us all in, in learning about different, um, you know, the way that the Japanese work in a corporate culture, um, and the way they tackle problems as opposed to the way that we approach problems or, or that kind of thing. Um, there's good and bad things to that, but that certainly had an impact in terms of the way that, or the direction I wanted to, to, to seek because I, I'd obviously, you know, then gained experience in a company. Um, I think other engagements like Model UN um, and also um, the Model ASEAN conference, which non-NCP people also went to, was really informative um, and changed the way I looked at things. Um, and perhaps the biggest um, influence for me was probably that in terms of, um, you know, looking at different pathways that I can take my law degree, you know, whether that be policy making or in government um, or, you know, something like what Elise is doing with, with DFAT, um, you know, and then I of course went to KPMG uh, and did consulting. I, I um, obviously, like consulting a lot more than I like law because it's a lot broader. Um, you know, typically in the law, you're very pigeonholed into a certain area. So I think those different experiences um, change my outlook on things. And I certainly would encourage um, law students to look at different areas apart from corporate law that you can really do stuff um, because certainly consulting, for example, can have a really big impact um, on society uh, other than, you know, big infrastructure that, that the law can do. Mm. Thank you for that, James. Elise, did you have anything else to add to that as well? Uh, just that, you know, every experience abroad will change your life. And I think that what, you know, can really make the difference to um, what you get out of it is kind of putting aside some time to think critically about your experience, what you liked, what you didn't like, um, where you would like to go in the future. And if you missed any opportunities or if there were things or elements that you didn't feel like you got out of a particular experience, how you might be able to create them for yourself. And I think for me, I've really found that, um, you know, I've talked to a lot of young people and, you know, they'll come up with these amazing solutions or amazing ideas or amazing um, ways that they want to engage with Asia and it might be you know incredible stuff like starting a business to do it or you know or they want an internship or they want a job doing x you know in y country and and actually one thing that I kind of you know say is um if you're game enough you know if you've got a good idea why don't you do that idea and why don't you give it a go and I think that you know things like um the amazing um ASEAN Australia strategic youth partnership ASIP um, all of these organizations you know youth groups and all of the rest um, even the speaker series I mean they just started by one person saying hey I think this would be a good idea um, talking to some other people about it and it kind of just snowballs from there so for me um, of course Asia has fundamentally changed my life and will always be part of my life um, but I think you know for individuals going forwards 
think about how you would like to engage with the region and what future you might like in the region. And if it doesn't exist or you don't know of it yet, um, think about how you might be able to create that opportunity for yourself. Just a, a, a quick a quick point on that. I, I just, I think as, as a matter of sort of practicality. So, you know, um, engaging like that like elisa saying can be as simple as doing like writing an article like you know when i it's so easy to set up a linkedin profile and just go and write something and put it out there and people will read it um and that's a really good way to expand your network and really you know leverage that network to drive opportunities in internships for example um you know i my internship at kpmg for example happened merely um well in fact it didn't even happen doing that i merely reached out to someone at um the university and said hey like can i learn about how you you know got a career in asia can i learn about what you um like doing and how you you got to do it um and I went and met that person. They said, well, hey, what, why are you like, why are you so interested? What do you want to do? And I told them, well, you know, I'm looking for an internship. I'd love to do an internship in law. And I was originally going to go do an internship in law. And then someone said to me, hey, why don't you try consulting? And I was like, all right, well, let's do that. Um, so, you know, I, I think like Elise says, a lot of stuff can happen organically, but you really have to, to sort of push yourself along. Starting with writing articles is really helpful. And there are a lot of places you can publish it. LinkedIn, um, you know, ASIP, like Elise mentioned, I, they published an article I wrote a couple of weeks ago. Um, even universities really like people that drive, um, you know, drive themselves. And, and certainly um, I'd be confident in saying that there would be people at whatever university you're at if you go and ask to meet with them about their experiences, they'd be happy to help you and support you um, in whatever you, you seek to do internships or, or otherwise. Thank you for that, James and Elise as well. Uh, we're going to move on to the chat questions now. So this is a question from Kat and this is directed to Elise. What is your PhD topic? Um, <laughs> PhD topic was in women's leadership in Australian international relations. So I basically had an amazing privilege to be able to um, travel across the world and interview ambassadors, defence attaches, high commissioners, um, uh, gosh, policing attaches, um, everyone who's kind of in that top uh, foreign affairs, defence, um, intelligence, kind of our international security agencies sphere. Um, and I did that over the last three years. I submitted my PhD in um, May and any day now should be a doctor. <laughs> With wow. <the> <laughs> congratulations. Amazing. Yeah, congratulations. That's incredible. Um, we'll move on to another question. Uh, this can be answered by any of you. So if you, any of you want to jump in. Uh, this one says, we all know about the NCP, but what are some other programs and opportunities to watch out for that you know of? If you know of any on the top of your head. <laughs> I think, well, I mean, perhaps just restating what I said before, um, stuff like Model UN can be really cool because you can meet a lot of people through that. Um, uh, I know some universities support people to go to model UNs overseas um, and there are creative ways to gain funding for that as well. Um, really pushing different departments in your university. And I know Griffith isn't going to be happy about me saying this, but pushing people to, to, to support you um, can, can sometimes really get you places um, in gaining financial support. Certainly I didn't have um, my own financial support to go to world model UN in Rome. Um, and I, 
basically put together a big document where I said, this is the benefits, this is what I can do for the university, support me and I will really hand back. Um, so there's that, there's also, you know, as Elise, uh, Elise mentioned, there's organisations like ASIP, um, there's a lot, you know, you name it, um, there's a country that has a dialogue for it. There's Australia-India Youth Dialogue, there's Indonesia Youth Dialogue, or it might be, I think they're association. But if you look it up, there'll be one. Um, and there are, you know, you make countless networks and, um, you know, people through those, uh, which can help you go wherever you might want to go. And I was going to say, you know, um, we always welcome so many amazing, incredible um, young leaders into our program. I'll put it in the chat now. That's the link to the Facebook page for the Young Entrepreneurs and Leaders Speaker Series. Um, we have our own opportunities for young people who might want to get in involved in, you know, collaborating with other youth across the region. Plus, um, you know, I'd, I'd suggest you absolutely follow up with, um, you know, ASEP, for instance, has brilliant resources on the opportunities that are coming up. And some of it is, honestly, it's just Googling. And I think um, if you can get your hands on um, some of the US State Department's youth um, workshops and, and programs, they're also fantastic because don't forget, not only the Australian government, but other governments in the region do all kinds of outreach pro programs and they're always looking for brilliant young people from very diverse backgrounds um, to, to join that. I think just on that point as well, um, an area that's really overlooked a lot as well uh, in terms of like formal work uh, are local engagements. So DFAT does a lot of stuff around local engagements um, where you know, they will say, okay, um, so sorry, Department of Foreign Affairs will say, uh, all right, we need someone in Hanoi to run this, or we need someone in Jakarta to run this. Um, and it can be a small role, can be a big role worth applying for. Um, I don't know how many they have at the moment. You've also got organizations like Austrade, um, which do a lot of stuff. Um, and also uh, the local chamber of commerce. So you, you have like Vietnam, uh, you know, Australia, Chamber of Commerce in Vietnam or Australia Chamber of Commerce in Thailand and they will have a directory um, of Australian companies over there that you can get internships through um, what well, at least you can ask them about amazing thank you so much guys for that um, we just have time for one more question uh, and I think this is more directed to James so for the summits you've been to do you think there is scope for students from degrees other than international relations government politics politics, et cetera, to participate? Is a certain level of policy knowledge needed? And if so, how can interested students build their skills and knowledge? Great question. Um, interestingly, I've met so many people that do really random degrees that'll do Model UN. Um, so there'll be uh, people that do like anthropology or um, archeology span or uh, there's people that do medicine that want to do it. So it really doesn't matter that you come from that background. I think that um, as Elise probably knows, doing a government international relations degree, a lot of that's like political theory um, and even like, you know, government, governments and markets and stuff like that sure is helpful. But um, I think a lot of that stuff comes down to creativity and resolving a problem. And a lot of the problems that we face globally are problems that, you know, don't take a lot of thinking um, in terms of, you know, the, the, the solution is quite um, obvious and it doesn't, you don't need a, a GIR degree or a law degree to do it. Um, you know, migrant healthcare, I, when I, I did that model ASEAN, I had no idea about like facilitation of healthcare. Um, 
we're so lucky we have a Google that we can just spend you know, hours on researching. Uh, so no, you don't need those degrees. Um, an interesting area is enough and ability to research is, is really great. I, I think if you have the passion, people can see that and you'll be rewarded for that regardless of what you study. And I was just going to give an example. We had we were running a gender equality conference in Vietnam with the Australian um, embassy there, and uh, one of the amazing people that came was an engineer. And actually, by bringing a engineer to this conference on gender equality, all of a sudden we were talking about well, how can you design a city? to be more safe for women. And so you have different conversations. And I think when we're looking at the region's biggest challenges, we need multidisciplinary approaches. So the more diverse, the better is what I say. So I think definitely get in there. And I just really quickly want to answer Melissa's question about how do you get internships or opportunities? Cold contact, just look out there, see who you want to work with or, or um, organizations you're interested in and just reach out to them. You'll be surprised at how many people give you um, plenty of time in the day um, and nurture you through what the next steps might be. Yeah, even, even like, also, oh, sorry, just quickly, um, just leveraging like university professors because there are often people that have worked in those industries um, and do have those networks. So meeting with them and, and saying, hey, look, I want to do this. Um, it, it, it could come to something, it could come to nothing, but it's worth talking to and certainly showing your um, curiosity and enthusiasm will, will always help. Yeah. Uh, back to Elisa's uh, point really quickly. Um, both points you made firstly about um, do you need the policy knowledge? I haven't attended um, as many conferences as probably Elise and James have, but the one that I did attend in Bangkok at the Peace Summit, it was really great to have um, diverse people there. I met engineers, I met this one guy from the Netherlands who, where his whole PhD was on how can you design cities to make it, to make people happier? How can people's moods be improved by city design? I met people who were studying psychology, architecture, you know, and all these, all these different fields really made for really rich discussion because you were there for the same reasons, but you all had different outlooks. And I think that's really important when you're attending a lot of these conferences, whether they be domestic or internationally and whatever issues they're on, it's always really, really valuable to have different outlooks. And like James said, you can Google, you know, if you're in a simulation that's asking you to, you know, broker a trade agreement, which is what I had to do. I had to represent a country. But I had to represent Vietnam, for example, but I didn't know anything about um, you know, Vietnam's, um, you know, relations with other countries, because that's probably something James could answer better. But, you know, you can Google it, you can talk to people who have experience in the region. And that's, that's all you need. You just need to be willing to really dive in headfirst, um, just if you have a passion whenever going to these things. And also on the internships, um, as Elise mentioned, yeah, just reaching out to people. One of my internships I got through um, NCP. So that was, um, you know, maybe a traditional route, I suppose, but then my internship I secured in India, that was a cold call. I was scrolling through LinkedIn one day. I saw that this person who I had connected with but never spoken to um, did this really interesting internship, I thought. So I just reached out to him and I introduced myself. I said, hey, this is who I am. This is why I'm interested. Do you have a contact for me? And he gave me that contact. And that's how I ended up getting that internship. You know, so there's so many different ways you can go about it. And as long as you're not afraid to reach out to people, um, whether you know them or not, um, yeah, really, really should just um, dive in headfirst and do whatever you can. Amazing. Thank you guys for all that advice. Um, it was really inspiring. I'm just going to um, 
wrap up now. So on behalf of everyone here, I would like to firstly give a big thank you to our speakers, Millie, James and Elise, for your incredible and informative insights into our experiences, into your experiences during your Asia experiences. I would also like to extend this thanks to Aliyah and Natasha from the Griffith Asia Institute, as well as Victoria Menzies from the Griffith Honours College and the 2019 and 2020 Griffith New Colombo Plan Scholars. I would also like to thank you, the audience, for coming and listening tonight. I hope that you have taken away a lot of insightful and very much inspiring pieces of what to expect um, during your travels to the Asia. Uh, I would also like to let you all know that we have another session coming up in two weeks focusing on volunteering and sustainable aid experiences in the Asia Pacific. This will be held on Tuesday the 25th of August at the same time from 5pm to 6pm. Registrations will be coming out soon, so make sure to be checking your social accounts and emails. This brings us to the close of session two. Once again, thank you all for coming. A recording from tonight will be on the registration page for you all. Thank you again and have a lovely night. See you on the 25th.